Let's pray, Cross Point. God, thank you first that you are. Whether we believe you or perceive you or not, you are. You are there. You exist. And because you're good, you listen and you care. And we've all come from different places. Lord, there's people of all different ages. Uh, some very, very troubled. Some very happy. Young and old, Lord, we've all come together. And our great need is to hear from you. So I pray that we would. I pray, Father, that you would guide us through your Holy Spirit. That we would love you. We would love your son, Jesus. And Lord, you, you know the depths of who you are far better than I do. You know them perfectly. I have the privilege and the task of trying to explain what you have told us about yourself. Help us to understand who you actually are. We can't love and trust someone who isn't real, who isn't actually there. So help us encounter you as you are, love you for who you are, and go home knowing that we have not only known you, but we have been loved by you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Later this afternoon, I'm going to send you a cartoon and a survey, okay? The cartoon will just help review some of the things we see today. It's about three minutes long. You're going to love it, I promise. You'll laugh. You'll at least laugh. If you don't love it, you will laugh. Do you like to laugh? Well, kind of a tepid response for... Uh, what I thought was a pretty easy softball question, but we move on, okay? The second thing is a survey. We are preparing as a church to relaunch our pre-COVID life. We think those days are ever closer, but this has gone on for so long and has had so many changes on everything. We just want to know who you are, where you are, what your plans are as we move forward. Always remember, the second service has the gale force winds, okay? If you want to see my hair parted and uh, my eyebrows blowing from one side to the other, the second service is the service to come to. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, what a day. We have guests, longtime church members, dear friends who are here from Phoenix, Arizona. They would tell you, you're in a good spot. Wind or not, you're in a good spot. Last week, I was in another spot. I was in Texas, and Texas stood up for itself and rained and poured on us and just made a mess of almost everything. I was there to watch my niece get married. It was a great joy to watch my brother-in-law, her father, cry his way through officiating the ceremony. I don't know how you who have been privileged to have daughters, I have no idea how you do it. My brother-in-law is a pretty tough-minded pastor, but he sniffed his way all the way through it and in the middle of the ceremony said, this is terrible. It's the worst day ever, right in the middle of the ceremony. And I said, bro, we all understand the humor of marrying off your first daughter, but the groom, your son-in-law is standing right in front of you. It's got to... It's got to feel a little different from his perspective to hear that. And right before he said, you may kiss your bride, he looked at his son-in-law and said, I want this to be classy, <laughs> which I'd never heard before. I might start incorporating that into weddings very soon. Um, <laughs> so it is good to be back. And today, in our survey of doctrine... Today we come to the topic that matters most. We're going to talk about God. 
I'm going to try to explain to you. I can't promise to be brief because there's much to say, but I am going to try to be concise and I'm going to try to be clear about what God has told us about himself. The witness of Scripture, which Pastor John looked at with you last week, begins in its very first words with the flat declaration that God exists. That there is an eternal, unmade God who has always been there, and at a time unknown to us of God's own choosing, God began to create. It's God that we're going to have to deal with, and that's going to put you and me in a little bit of a mental bind because we are going to look at things too deep to actually completely understand. I want to tell you about that and encourage you a little bit before we get started. There is a bias in human nature. I actually consulted, I asked informally a friend on Facebook who's a professional philosopher to help me understand what I knew was there. He gave me the terminology for it, and I won't get into that. But there's something in human nature that says, if I don't understand it, it's not very important. There's just something in each of us. I believe you see this most clearly with children. When children begin to learn something, the minute they find out they're not very good at it or it doesn't make sense to them or they get things wrong about it, many children will say, this is stupid or this is boring. And what they mean is not that it's not, it's not actually stupid, it's actually beyond them. And they're not actually bored, they're frustrated because they ran into the multiplication tables or some other terrible mountain that you have to climb mentally as a child. They didn't immediately get it. It upset them. I think it wounded their pride. Our pride is regularly wounded when we learn things that we don't understand that doesn't make immediate sense to us. And what we do in human nature is if somebody knows something that you don't, you tend to call them a nerd. You're the smart one, you're the one that focuses on what matters, you're practical, you've got street sense, whatever, however you want to explain it to yourself, but it's other people who know things that I don't or that don't make immediate sense to me or make my head hurt or I can't even imagine why anybody would want to know anything about that, that's stupid or unnecessary and I just won't think about it anymore. That bias really creates a problem when we talk about God. Because the very nature of someone or something that is eternal, someone who has simply always been there, already I'm out of ideas. I can't conceive of a God who is simply there. And then when God begins to explain himself, and he doesn't do it fully, God tells you with the sovereignty of God himself, God tells you what he wants you to know about himself. He doesn't answer all the questions that you have, you may have noticed. Have you ever wished that there was more in the Bible? Or he would answer a specific question that you have? He doesn't always. He's a separate person. He has a mind that is different from yours. He has plans and will and emotions. Your emotions are like his because he actually made you in his image so that you could relate to him, but he is other in the language of the Bible. God is holy. He is separate. And the trouble with that is the minute I begin to explain to you 
what God has told us about himself and his word, I guarantee you, and it won't take long probably in this sermon because it happened to me early on in writing the sermon, you're going to hear something that doesn't make sense to you, that you can't get your mental arms around, and at that point you're going to be tempted to check out and say, nerd stuff, dumb stuff, doesn't matter stuff, I'm not listening anymore. And get lost in Facebook or Instagram or whatever you do when it, it whatever it is you do when the pastor's boring. I'm going to try very hard not to bore you, but listen, we're going to be talking about God, and with every person, within every person, there are depths. Don't be worried about your inability to understand everything about God and to fathom everything about the being that is God. You don't even completely understand yourself. That's the nature of relating to another person. I'll prove it. Those of you who are married, do you completely understand your spouse? Don't look at them. Well, that'll, that'll, that'll increase our counseling load around here, and we're not trying for that. Parents, do you completely understand your kids? Kids, do you completely understand your parents? Not at all. Why is that? Think about that. Some of you are very similar in age. You come from the same kind of background. You have the same values, the same faith. And yet, the person sitting beside you sometimes is almost a completely unknown world. That is the nature of a personal relationship. There are depths and knowledge and purposes and plans within that other person that you can understand. You can have a certain, for sure, practical, loving relationship with another person, but not completely understand them. I'm 30 years nearly into marriage. I know her and love her more than I did the first, than the first time I asked her out, but there are depths in my wife that I am still exploring, and that will always be. I don't know if there are depths in me. There are We'll just say areas, okay? There are areas that continue to mystify and befuddle her and make her wonder, among other things, what in the world have I done? Why am I here? Um, when does this end? We don't know. That's the nature of personal relationships. What we're talking about is God, and I want to talk to you in plain language, using the language of the Bible itself, and show you in a long passage toward the end of the sermon, I want to bring you into one of the mountaintop peaks of Scripture and listen to Jesus pray within the fellowship of God that we're now going to begin to discuss. So, a lot of Scripture and a lot of notes. Let me tell you who God is. If you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the first thing you encounter is the unity of God. God is one. There is one God. That is found in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God, singular, God created the heavens and the earth. Already, we're almost beyond the human capacity to completely understand what is happening because the Bible announces without apology or explanation that God simply is. And the first thing we're told about God himself is that God, in the beginning, when he wanted to, made everything that surrounds you. The heavens and the earth, they are his creation. And speaking into the context of the ancient world, when Moses was writing the book of Genesis, one 
countercultural claim is that there are not many gods. There is not a God of the river and a God of the valley. There is not a God in charge of certain things, and he delegates and defers to other gods in other places. No, there is one God who simply is, who made everything that exists. You'll say, well, that takes a lot of faith. Yes, the very existence of creation calls for faith because if you disbelieve, if you deny that there is a God, you end up believing in something like eternal creation. Because if you push God out of the picture, if you dial the clock back long enough in the argument of the atheist, they will say there were particles, there was energy, there was a singularity. In the beginning was something and given tons and tons and tons of time in the beginning, whatever was there made everything else that we now see. So you either believe, in a sense, in an eternal God or in an eternal something. I think it makes much more sense given the intelligence all around us, including woven into our own code that makes us who we are, our DNA. It is much more obvious to believe that in the beginning someone was there, not something was there. But the Bible for now doesn't even get into that. It just announces in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth in the confession of the faith of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is reviewing the law with Israel, explaining to them, reminding to them, reminding them, really preaching to them through what God had commanded them. And here is their basic confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So there it is. God is, and God is to be loved, and God is one. He is not many. He is not an impersonal force. He is personal, who makes and creates and can be loved and trusted, but God is one. It's the very first thing, literally, you see in the Bible. Now, as you keep reading, and this is where the depths begin, as you keep reading, distinctions within the unity of God emerge. The unity of God, the oneness of God, that is all through the Bible. But the more you keep reading from left to right, you begin to see distinctions within the unity of God. Specifically, what I mean is you see persons. And those persons are in relation with one another. Here's a very well-known verse known to almost all Christians. Probably if you haven't heard this verse and you're already a Christian, it's because you just began your Bible reading, you just began your relationship with God. John chapter 1, verse 1. Many of you know it by heart. Whether you read it or you know it by heart, say it with me. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You'll notice that John, in beginning his gospel, in beginning to tell the story of Jesus, is echoing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's very intentional. In the beginning was the Word, not God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, wait, what? John had the Old Testament. That's all the Scripture he had. Genesis 1.1 in his Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, says, in the beginning God. John begins his gospel to explain the life of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and stunningly, the word, whoever that is, whatever that is, the word was God. What were you talking about, John? You just keep reading down the paragraph and you discover he's talking about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh. What word? The word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, the word that was God, that word became flesh. And before you check out and say, I don't get it, remember, John is a first century commercial fisherman. You have way more education, way more technology, way more training than John himself did, who knew Jesus and told you what he saw about him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's referring to himself, his fellow disciples, his friends, his family members. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of, watch the persons within the Godhead. Watch the persons within the being that is God start to take sharp focus. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only, what? Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. We Christians have a holiday. It is actually the most beloved holiday in all of the United States, whether people believe in Christ or not, that celebrates John chapter 1, verse 14. What is, what is the holiday that we use to celebrate what John is telling us in John 1, 14? Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, who was in the beginning, who was always with God, who always was God, he did at a time in history, he became a human being and he actually lived among us. And he was so close to us and so we could put his, our hands on him and see him and hear him and touch him. That's what he says in the first epistle he wrote, John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. We saw his glory. We could see him. He was right across from us. We had breakfast with him. We actually watched him die. But in everything that he did, we saw his glory. His glory was not like man-made glory. He wasn't like one of our great politicians or one of our great leaders. His glory was as of the only son from the father. He was full of grace and truth. In other words, you can look back at the first page of the Old Testament and you can see that these distinctions, which I've shown you in the Gospel of John, those distinctions, in other words, those persons were there all along. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells you that God exists. As you read left to right in your Bible, who God is, his nature, his essence begins to emerge it doesn't take long. It's the second verse of the Bible. Those persons were there all along. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering across the face of the waters. Have you ever noticed that the Spirit is mentioned in verse 2? Who is creating the world? God is. As you read left to right, you're going to discover that all of God, Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in the act of creation because God is creating. That really gets even more spelled out with some really interesting pronouns a little later in the chapter. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the log, livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move in the ground. Did you notice a surprising pronoun? God, singular, said, what? Let us. Who's that? Why is the singular God, the God who is one, why is he speaking of and to himself in the plural? Well, he's making human beings in his image so that we can relate to the God he actually is. Look at verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This, you've already picked up on this. This is the biblical idea of Trinity. God is one, but God eternally, God always, because that is who God is. God exists in threeness. And you say, I don't get it. I don't see how God can be one and eternally exist in three persons, as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At this point, someone, probably in your childhood, and possibly a cult member, comes along trying to explain it to you to make it simple. And they say, well, listen, it's like this. God is like an egg. An egg has a shell and a white and a yolk. Helpful, not true. Because the shell is just the shell. The yolk is just the yolk. The white of the egg is just the white of the egg. It's not what God is saying about himself. Someone say, no, no, that, that's not it. God is like water. Because water can be ice, and water can be liquid, and water can be vapor. Those two extreme simplifications are not at all what the Bible's saying. And people have actually given those mistakes names. Going to give you a little terminology here. The first part is called partialism. And what that basically means is that God the Father is one-third of God, God the Son is the second third of God, and God the Spirit is the third third of God. And when they all three come together, then you've got one complete God. God's not a pie. He can't be sliced up. It's not at all what the Bible shows you. The other thing that I just mentioned, that God is like water, that is ice and then water and then vapor, that's a very common mistake. There are even some Christian churches who call themselves Christians at least that don't in their refusal to stand in the tension of a God who says that he is one, but he eternally exists in loving fellowship and harmony as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They invented something called that we have called modalism. And modalism says that God first presented himself as a father. And then he got less angry and a lot sweeter. And then he decided to present himself as a son. And in these last days, he's no longer explaining to himself, himself to us as a son. He's now a spirit so that he can be everywhere and pull everybody in. These ideas, these all sounds like term in the realms of geekery, but they have really, really profound implications. They really make a difference in terms of what people believe. Another simple thing that people have done, and this dates back about 1,600 years, there was a priest named Arius. Arius taught that there is one God, the Father. 
and that at a certain time God made the sun something like a super powerful angel who was created. In other words, he had a beginning just as you did. He's just a whole lot stronger. And the force that is doing all this, the energy, if you will, is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is something like an angel and the Holy Spirit is something like electricity. Now, you may have never even heard these terms and these names, but you may have seen some of these things work out in TV shows, maybe a different church you visited. I have been in church services and seen video where people claim to harness the Holy Spirit, and it's almost like a video game. They grab the Holy Spirit and they throw him at other people. Or someone may ask for prayer or usually ask for an offering and he'll pray and put his hand on a towel and he'll mail you the towel and when you touch the towel, then the spirit energy that he put in the towel will be transferred to you. Any of this making sense? Is this ringing any bells for some of you? Now, where does that come from? That comes from the human desire to not simply grapple with what God actually said about himself and accept it and go deeper in trying to understand this person who is God, but rather simplifying it and collapsing it until you can understand it. The Christian term for this, of course, is Trinity. And someone will say, you're preaching tradition. You're preaching some medieval thing that someone made up somewhere. I will be pleasantly surprised if nobody sends me an email but every time somebody teaches about the Trinity, someone comes up with a YouTube video and says, no, no, that was invented. The term's not even in the Bible. Let's deal with that directly. The term Trinity is nowhere in the Bible. Good reason for that. It's a Latin term. And all it means is three or threeness. All it is is a term that Christians made up a long time ago to describe and name what they saw the Bible teaching. Very important for me to tell you this. Christians do not believe in the Trinity because of tradition. The tradition of the Trinity and the teaching of the Trinity exists because the Trinity is what Christians have always found in the Bible. Trinity is just a term to sum up, to have shorthand to describe what we find the Bible teaching literally from Genesis to Revelation. Do not be troubled that pastors, Bible teachers, and you yourself use terms to describe biblical teaching and biblical ideas that are nowhere found in the Bible itself. That's just shorthand. That's the nature of knowledge. Do you believe in gravity? That was incredibly weak response. Huh? <laughs> you're, so you're so far gone into the depths of the Trinity, I can't pull you out to uh, ask you a basic question about science. Do you believe in gravity? Are you aware that the term gravity appears nowhere in nature? You can look through the oceans, through the deserts, through the woods, and through the bogs of Louisiana. You will nowhere find in God's created nature the term gravity. Why? Gravity is definitely a truth. Gravity is a definite reality in the universe. We've coined the term. We could call it something else. We could call it the stuff that keeps us grounded. It's a terrible pun. I apologize. We could call it something else. All gravity is is a term to refer to reality, and that's all the term Trinity is. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons. Let me show you before we're finished. It's very important for you to know this. Had there only been one God, 
Had there only been God and he had never made anything else, he would eternally exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is who God is. Apart from what God does, his nature, his essence, his reality, the godness of God, a philosopher would say, is that he is one who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. There is one God in three persons, all equal in essence, eternality, and attributes. In other words, the holiness of the Father is the holiness of the Son. Whatever is true as an attribute of God is true of all of God in all three persons. That's important to understand because sometimes get, people get the idea that the Father is barely putting up with them and it's Jesus who loves them. And then this mysterious force called the Spirit will come along and kind of make everything okay. No, the eternal God who eternally somehow exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything that can be said about God is true about each of those persons. They have all worked to save you. In all of his major actions, such as creation and salvation, it is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is acting, who is working in time, who is dealing with you. Here's an old, old illustration that Christians have used to remind themselves of the truth of the Trinity. It's sometimes called the Trinity Shield. It's just a simple visual reminder that the persons are not one another. In other words, the Father is not the Son. That kills off modalism. And that each of the persons are themselves God. It's not a proof, it's just an illustration, it's a visual reminder of what the Bible teaches. Now, here's a very simple way to get into the idea of the Trinity, and that is just to remind yourself of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you've heard and believed the gospel. You've heard the good news of the gospel. That God made you in his image so that you could love him and enjoy him forever. That the God who is there is so loving and so good that he wants to share himself with others. That is why the first thing that God does that we're told of in the Bible is his act of creation. God, by his nature, is not only loving. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says that God is love. And the love has always existed in God. That is his nature. It's not something he does. It's essential to him. It's one of his attributes. And the love within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is always radiating outward to you. That's why he made you. That's why he continues to love you. And a simple way to get into this deep idea of the Trinity is just to think of the gospel itself, which is this. God the Father sent God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to save fallen humanity. That's it. All persons of the Trinity are present in that statement. The Father sent the Son and the Holy Spirit to save us. Very well-known verse. John 1, 1 is very well-known. John 3, 3, 16 is even more so. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten son, the son that is eternally with him, the son that is eternally 
from the Father. He was sent among sinful humanity. He took on flesh. He is God. He has the very nature and the essence of God. He took on a second nature, human nature. He lived among us. And then the Holy Spirit comes to remind us of these things, to teach us all these things, to open up our eyes, to turn on the light, to direct us to the teachings of Jesus and to the word that the Holy Spirit himself inspired so that we will wake up to the ultimate reality that is God himself. That's a lot. That's a drink out of a fire hydrant. But it's all the Trinity is found in the gospel. The Trinity is God. That is the nature of God. And once you see it, I'm going to invite you to do this. As you read your Bible this week, just keep this lens on and see how often you see Trinitarian teaching all the way through the Bible. Once you see it, you'll see it everywhere. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What this means is that our salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Say, it's getting a little deep for me. Yes, me too. Remember, I'm talking about the person who made us all. I'm talking about the being that has always existed, who was so great, he made all of this. He not only understands, he created physics and chemistry. He put intelligence and beauty and creativity and desire in human beings because they are a reflection of his own attributes. You love because God is love. You want justice and righteousness because God is just and because God is righteous. You separate yourself from evil and wicked deeds. Your conscience recoils at certain horrible things. You turn off certain news stories because you can't bear to look at the way people treat each other because God himself is holy. And though you are sinful, you are made in his image and you reflect his attributes and broken and sinful and distorted as that image and in you having been marred by sin is you are the very... You are a creature of God and you will always bear in your being the signature of who he is. So how could we ever think, first of all, that we can completely get our minds around a God that powerful, that beautiful, that strong, that creative, that eternal, and most importantly, how could we ever think that we could save ourselves? Our salvation took all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each in their own way, united in their operations, created, and then distinct in their persons, worked out your salvation with the Father sending the Son whom he always loved, and the Holy Spirit sent by the Father from the, uh, from the Son, comes in, turns the lights on, and brings you into the family of God. And in closing, let me reassure you that you already know more Trinitarian theology than you think. You're already more Trinitarian. You're already more in touch with the God who is actually there than you realize. Here's some proof. You pray to the Father in the name of the Son. Here's how Jesus taught us about prayer. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will remain, so that whatever you ask the Father, what do he say? In my name, he will give you. 
you're speaking to the Father in the name of the Son. You're also baptized, or you should be, in this way. Here's how Jesus taught us about baptism. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Very well-known verse. If you've witnessed a Christian baptism, you've heard this verse. This verse is so well-known to Christians, we named it. This is the beginning of the Great Commission. And I want you to see in that single verse, there's the Trinity. There is the unity of God and also the distinction of the persons within the triunity of God. Do you see it? Look very carefully at that verse and you'll see the unity of God and also you'll very obviously see the distinction of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, very easy to see, right? It's just right there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Where do you see the unity of God? It's subtle. Just look at the first half of the verse. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the... What's it say? Is that singular or plural? It's singular. How interesting. Why didn't Jesus say in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Well, because there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, I just don't understand this one existing eternally in threeness. This won't prove anything, but it's just an interesting idea. Because I was listening to a Muslim missionary many, many years ago, and he said, the objection we always get from Muslims who deny specifically the deity of Jesus, who deny actually his death on the cross, who think that when Christians speak of a father and a son, we're blaspheming. Muslim took a piece of paper, put it in front of this missionary I was listening to, and wrote this, one plus one plus one equals, you do the math. One plus one plus one equals? Well, then go see. Silly. How can three be one? Missionary took the paper and wrote this. One times one times one times one equals one. Doesn't prove anything. But here again are three ones who make a total of either three or one. What makes the difference? The relation they have with one another. Here is a Christian being baptized in the name, single, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. You also know the gospel. And with this, I'm done. Listen to the gospel. Listen to Paul explain to the Galatians. And again, don't sell yourself short. The Galatians were people who lived under the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey. The ability you have to understand things, to grapple with things, to learn from people wiser than you are is so much greater than the Galatians had. But listen to Paul explain the good news to them. Here's what he said to them in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the whole gospel. At the time when God had orchestrated all world events 
to his own liking to spread the good news of himself, the father sent his son. That son adopted human nature by being born of a woman and he was born as a human being under the law of God so that he could fulfill the law because God knew you had not and would not. And now that you have trusted God and you have loved his son and you have asked his son to save you from your sins, the father also sent his spirit rushing into our hearts telling us that God is our father and we're no longer slaves, but we're actually God's own children. And because we're in God's family and because we are his children, we have the full riches of his total inheritance because that's what good fathers do. They leave their children an inheritance. They make them their heirs. Are you loved? Yes. By whom? By all of God, by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't want to confuse the persons. You don't want to say, as I have heard sometimes Christians casually pray, thank you, Father, for dying for our sins. No, no. The Father didn't die for your sins. The Father sent the Son to die for your sins. But all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves you, welcomes you, blesses you in the unity of God's operations and in God's heart and mind, each person doing what was necessary in God's own sight for our salvation. You are blessed by all of God. Listen to the last part of 2 Corinthians. In fact, you can read it with me. No church drove Paul crazier than the Corinthian church. They were drunks. They were immoral. They were suing each other. They were behaving so badly at the Lord's Supper that God in judgment was not only making some of them sick, evidently he was killing some of them. It's a mess. If you read both letters he sent them, you realize what a terrible mess of a church they are. In fact, he said, sometimes when unbelievers come in, he, they're going to think you're crazy. I'm always comforted about any church I've ever been involved with, no matter how bad it gets in any church I'm part of, whether as a pastor or just as a church member, I can always read the book of Corinth and say, we are not all the way down yet, okay? <laughs> Listen to the way Paul closes his second letter to them. He said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. This is all of God with each person in this verse giving different things because all of God loves all of you. And you can receive the grace of Jesus and the love of the Father and you will do it through the fellowship of the Spirit. And that will be for all Christians. What am I trying to tell you? That God in all of his triune glory loves you, saves you, and directs you. And the best use of your life the life that God gave you is for you to love and obey and glorify him. And the reason this is deep is because we're talking about God himself. But here's the good news. The depths of God are all good. One of the reasons human relationships are difficult is some of you have discovered painfully in marriage, in friendship, in relationship with your children, in relationship with your parents and your coworkers. You go deeply enough into a person, you'll find something you don't like. You'll find a point where they pull back, where they are less than faithful, where they are less than loving. You will find in the most patient person in the world, you will eventually find resentment. 
and they will eventually tire of you. I saw a study where they put two friends in a cabin. They just set some cameras up in the cabin. They left them no entertainment, nothing to do, but just be there together, eat and sleep together. Within 48 hours, each man confessed to having murderous thoughts toward the other. <laughs> That's human nature. That's the way we are because we're sinful. In our depths, we're selfish, but God is none of that. He's different from us, and the God who describes himself simply in this way, God is love. In love exists in fellowship and in harmony, in harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He welcomes you into the essence, the reality, the nature of who he is, and the depths of God are all good and you'll never stop enjoying him. As eternity rolls on, because you will never be God and you will never know all that God knows, you will know him and understand him better. And someday we'll be in heaven together in the presence of Jesus, still bearing the wounds on the cross from the cross that it took to save us. And we will somehow be enjoying the love from the Spirit who is the Father. And we will be doing all of that through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, you'll probably tell me this was a lousy sermon. And I told you the truth because all I mainly did was read the Bible to you and try to explain it to you in the simplest terms that I could find so that I could understand it myself. But you will probably tell me on that day, he is so much better than you ever told us. And to close our service, I want you to hear the Son speaking to the Father in John chapter 17. This is that reading I told you of. This is the fellowship. This is the love that you're being welcomed into. This is the love that caused the Father to send the Son and caused the Son to die for sinners. This is the love that sent the Holy Spirit to show people their sin and their need of God. In John chapter 17, as I told you, we're standing on one of the peaks of Scripture. Jesus is praying, but he's not praying to teach. This is an incredibly rare Scripture because you listen to the Son speak to the Father. And it's just going to be the two of them. The Son is going to speak of the Father, of the life they had in eternity past. He's going to talk about the life that he enjoyed and that he gave to his disciples. And he is going to pray for the life that he is going to continue to have with the Father and into which he is going to bring the disciples. All of that is in John 17. It's beautiful, it's deep, and you're included. Listen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. There you are, welcomed into the life and the fellowship of the Trinity. Incredible. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's Jesus referring to there? Judas. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil when they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Here we come. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you loved me. Chew on that for a moment. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even, the world, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made them I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you had loved me may be in them and I in them. You'll notice it all ends with love. The love between the Father and the Son, together they are welcoming ordinary people, ordinary sinful people like us into the fellowship of God himself to be treated not as his servants, not as his slaves, not as objects of his creation alone, but to be treated as his own children. Every effort you make to know this God better will be repaid. Everything you learn about him will be beautiful. Just like knowing someone else who is truly good is kind of an unfolding adventure and an unfolding blessing to know the one who is perfectly good, perfectly true, perfectly holy, perfect in love and mercy and justice and truth, to know him and to know that he has acted in eternity at a great cost to himself, the father sending the son and the son dying for sin so that you may be welcomed into the fellowship of who God eternally is. Wow, are you lost yet? That's love. 
That's how much you're loved, and it makes all the difference in the world because this week or next, you may find some terrible trials. You probably already have. There will be suffering, and there will be setbacks, and there will be loss, and eventually for yourself or for someone you love, there will be death. And in those moments, you will be tempted to think that the God who runs the universe does not truly love you, is not truly good, is not truly close. And the teaching of who God is, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, united in perfection and beauty and glory and in saving, redeeming, loving purpose, that will keep you steady through the grief, that will keep you steady through the loss as you remember that you are loved and that the depths of God, unlike the depths of you and the depths of any other person, the depths of God are all good. And someday, even through tears now, someday you will enjoy him again, and in eternity you will enjoy him forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray now, Lord, that you would make your goodness known to anybody who needs to be saved. And can I just ask you very directly, very practically, do you know the God I've been talking to you about? I'm not asking you if you completely understand him. I don't completely understand him. No one does. I'm asking you, do you have the practical, real assurance that you have trusted in the love of God that I've been telling you about? You have trusted his son as your savior. You know your sins are forgiven and you've been welcomed into this kind of love. If you don't, I'm inviting you in the name of Jesus to turn away from your sin and be saved today. To tell this God, I don't understand everything I heard. I only understand a little bit of it, but I understand I'm far from you. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. Please save and forgive me. God in his grace will welcome you as he has welcomed untold millions of others. Down through history, he'll welcome you and call you his daughter. He'll call you his own son. If you do that today, if you're in person, let us know on the card that's in your bulletin. If you're online, send us a text message. Send me an email. In some way, as you turn to God, let us know as well that you have taken a step of loving faith into the family of God this morning. And Christian, this is the God of all eternity, uncreated Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving you. It's not that the Father barely puts up with you and it's really the Son that loves you. The Holy Spirit guides you sometimes. No, all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of God made you. All of God loves you. All of God saves you. All of God welcomes you into fellowship with Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you will enjoy the love and the unity that Father, Son, and Spirit always have. Father, reassure us in that love. We're weak, we're broken, we're fearful. We're very, very finite. We all feel it in different ways. We feel anxiety. We feel depression, anger, uncertainty, sleeplessness, Lord. We're reminded of our frailty, of our brokenness in so many different ways. And you are none of those things. You suffer from none of them. You are perfect and good and holy and you are love. And because you're love, you welcome us into the love that you have always enjoyed in yourself. Thank you. 
If there's any single person who needs to trust you as Savior, I pray that today they would and that you would strengthen Christians and remind us that the one God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not only made us, but loves us and redeems us as we have seen in your word. I thank you for all of this, and I praise you for it, and I ask only, God, that we would love and obey you this week because you are so good. I pray in Jesus' name. Crosspoint said, amen. amen. God bless you, folks. Love you. If you need help, you need prayer, we are here for you. We're a family with a great father. God bless you. Bye-bye.